0: How many of you like to go to the hospital? You probably don't, unless you're going for the mother-baby unit, right? I mean, barring some sad exceptions, I would say the most exciting part of the hospital, the most exciting floor, is the, is the mother-baby unit. And as parents, we wait eight to nine months, anticipating The arrival of the expected little one. We, we even post the pictures of the, of the ultrasound and we just, we wait. Uh, we wait for their, for their presence and whenever they come, it's a, it's a, it's a miracle. It, it, it really is. Grown men will, will cry. Mothers are overcome with a sensation of nurturing that they never felt before. Grandparents lose their minds. They do. And the Bible records some pretty amazing births, doesn't it? I mean, you go all the way back to, to the Old Testament, the birth of Isaac to a woman who was, who was barren, hundred years of, of age. That's, that's pretty amazing. The womb of Manoah's wife was opened and she had Samson. And Samson was this, this great, great man who killed a thousand men and turned a lion inside out. The birth of Samuel the prophet came to Hannah whose womb was, was, was closed and she was pleading with the Lord to the point that, that, that they thought that she was drunk or had lost her mind. Even Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, the mother of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the, the one about which Jesus said that there's never been another greater born of a woman. Even Elizabeth was barren. And so her birth was, was miraculous. And yet all of those amazing, miraculous births pale in comparison to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the birth of the, of the promised one. God had not given any new revelation to Israel for 400 years. And it had been 2,000 plus years since, since the promise was given to Abraham, that a seed would come fulfilled in time by by Isaac. But Galatians tells us, talking about the seed, which was the the Lord Jesus Christ, 2,000 years. Talk about a long gestational period. That's a long time for a nation to carry a baby. And when the Messiah finally came, God made sure that his birth was announced. You will read it and hear it over and over. God made sure that the prophecy was explained beforehand that this was not something that anybody just came up with. This is something very old. This is something that goes back to, to the time of, of Abraham, even in Genesis. And God also made sure that there was no way that anyone could confuse who the real Father was. It was God the Father. Jesus the Bible tells us, was born to a virgin named Mary, betrothed to a man of the house of of David, and he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was unique. It was a spectacular birth. And the Gospel of Matthew begins announcing how Jesus was born. So if you're not there, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse 18 and read through the, the end of the chapter. Watch how Matthew transitions from the genealogy to this first statement that, that he makes. He establishes the roots in, in the Old Testament all the way back to Adam. And now he says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows... Mary, your wife, to take you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is called, which is translated, God with us. And Joseph, then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife and did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. What a beautiful name. There is no other name under heaven given whereby we might be saved. There is no sweeter name than the name of Jesus because of who he is and and what he's done. And in Matthew, immediately following the genealogy that shows, as you saw last week, that that Jesus is the new Adam, that he is the true blessing of, of Abraham, that he's the true Davidic king, that he's the true return from exile, Matthew goes right into how this Jesus comes to us. Jesus not only had the birthright by genealogy... He has the right birth by supernatural conception. And part of Matthew's purpose is in writing his gospel is to explain and defend the truth about Jesus. So he declares an accurate account of how the Messiah is conceived. And Satan particularly attacks those truths about Christ that matter for salvation. You want one of the proofs that, that Jesus is truly God. You watch how Jesus is attacked all over the world. Let little children write about the praises of Allah in schools in Virginia and you hear absolutely nothing from government officials or otherwise. You hear somebody say, even Merry Christmas in public schools and they go nuts, right? Why? Because Satan knows the power of Jesus. And Satan has always attacked the truth of Jesus. Jesus' humanity is often maligned and his deity is often denied. And both of those truths are wrapped up in the swaddling cloths of the virgin birth. It's such an important and explosive topic that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because of it. In John chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because... He not only broke the Sabbath, he not only violated their their laws, but also said that God was his Father. There's the virgin birth, making himself equal with God. What did the Jews know? Why did they get so mad? They understood that the virginal conception meant deity. They understood what this meant. That if Jesus was born exactly the way that Matthew declares here, then Jesus was God. He was the second person of the Trinity. And so Matthew carefully declares how Jesus was born. And I want to show you that this morning and also show you what that means for you and I today. Then Matthew, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18 through, through 25, it's the birth of the promised one. That's, that's the whole point that Matthew's trying to get across. And it's broken down very simply. There are three parts. Not just because that's the way preachers like to preach. Three points as a poem, as you heard. Literally, there are three sections here. His conception is announced in verse 18 through 21. You see that in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. That's an announcement. His conception was announced. God's prophecy is explained in verse 22 through 23. Look at verse 22. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. God's prophecy is explained. And then thirdly, Joseph's obedience is confirmed. Look at verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. You see all those natural breaks in that in that path or in that section of of Matthew. Let's look at the first one here. He says, his conception is announced. Look at verse 18. This, now the birth of Jesus was as follows, is a, is a statement. You, you should get the sense of like an official record. You can tell even the way that Matthew puts this, this is not a, a casual statement. He's not saying, oh, by the way, such and such happened. He's saying, now the birth of Jesus was as follows. It's, it's declaratory. And it's declaratory because after 400 years, God is speaking afresh to His people. And He's announcing the Messiah's birth. And He's announcing a new era in Israel's history. The promised one is conceived. And that's what Matthew is saying. And this this promised one comes in the midst of a normal life. It's announced by angels. And it's accomplished by God. That's everything that Matthew covers in this first point. It's amidst normal life. Look what he says in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Can you think of how many times in the Bible this idea of marrying is used for things are happening uh, everyday events are happening. They're eating and drinking. In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and given in marriage. And then the flood comes. In the book of Revelation, we'll see this same idea of eating and drinking and marrying. It just means ordinary life. Normal things were happening. This is normal Jewish life happening here. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Well, that's what kids did then. So what teenagers did, just like they do today. They, they, the methods may have changed, but they're still finding ways to make little eyeballs at each other and getting the warm fuzzies and figuring out how to get close. Well, that had already taken place. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And the first thing that Matthew tells us is this birth happened in some very common, very common circumstances, Mary and Joseph were just two ordinary Jewish teenagers living out their daily lives, and God called them to do an extraordinary work. Nazareth was a very small town, even a very uneventful place. And Mary and Joseph were very ordinary people. That's usually how God works. I don't know your idea of of, of what what, what you think about when you think about God using someone or calling someone or, or moving in someone's life, but that's usually how it works. He does the miraculous, but he does it amidst the common. He does the unusual through the usual. You should remember that pattern because it's all through the Bible. Noah wasn't a special man. Abraham wasn't a special man. Now, you can find God using kings, but a lot of people that God used were just ordinary fishermen like Peter who's out casting his nets and Jesus comes to him and he says, drop your nets and follow me. God uses ordinary people in everyday circumstances and calls them to do extraordinary things. You know, I would say you probably consider yourself a fairly ordinary person. If you don't, you got issues, right? I mean, we're nothing special. <laughs> we're We're nobody. One of the things that you figure out after you've lived a long period of time is there's all kinds of people in the world. And yeah, you can find people that are beneath you, but there are millions of people that are better than you and above you. But your ordinary circumstances doesn't prohibit God from calling you to do extraordinary things. I think sometimes we we look at pastors or missionaries or people that God's already called or somebody like Mary and Joseph and we we think, man, they're really serving the Lord. They're they're some type of super-Christian. And you should remember that every servant of God is first called to be faithful. But you also should remember that they're called from the normal. God doesn't have this this, uh, uh, top drawer of... Of, uh, of, of supernatural individuals over here that he calls to do things whenever he, whenever he has something to do. He calls you, and he calls you, and he calls you, and he calls you, right out of the middle of the pews of a church in, in Lynchburg, Virginia. God doesn't call perfected servants. He perfects them through simple service. And he finds you in the mundane and he taps you on the shoulder and he says, you're doing a great job being a husband or a wife. Now, come and lead over here. You're doing a great job being a grandparent. Now, come and mentor this young believer. You're a good math teacher, so come and teach my word in, in children's ministry. When was the last time you thought about, about your life like that? Whatever you're doing right now, in the ordinary and in the common is preparation for what God's going to ask you to do next. Doesn't the Bible say that you're to be faithful, the person who's faithful in small things? What's the rest of it? That's right. It's going to call you to do greater things. And when the time comes, you're doing faithful in the small things, being faithful in the small things, you usually have a choice to make. And that's where He brings joseph this focuses on joseph there are other passages that focus on mary it says in verse 18 before they came together she was found with child mary and joseph somewhere in the betrothal period which lasted about a year it's kind of like our engagement except more stringent the couple wasn't married it was like part one to a two-part series The couple wasn't married, but and they hadn't come together physically yet, but they were legally bound, and they required a divorcement to separate. I mean, it was a legal arrangement. It was considered adultery if one of them strayed even before the wedding. And and we're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, that Mary is about four months pregnant. So she's showing. She spent three months with Elizabeth, and she shows back up after being with Elizabeth. And she goes away with a flat belly and she comes back with a bump. And Nazareth is a small town. And obviously, Joseph knows Mary. And so this couple betrothed. in normal circumstances. Mary shows back up and there's only two conclusions that anybody could draw. One, it was either Joseph's by sin or is it was someone else's by sin. That would have been the normal conclusion. Either Joseph and Mary got together sinfully, or more than likely, while Mary was away at Elizabeth's, something horrible happened. And now Joseph has to make a choice. Look at verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Here's a choice. That's what's meant when it says Joseph, being a righteous man, was unwilling to to put her to public shame. He chose not to go the public route. He he chose to give her a simple writ of divorcement. It it records the choice that, that Joseph planned on making. And he did that because of his character. He was a righteous man, but also of the chastisement that was going to come on Mary. A righteous man, it just meant that he was a, Joseph was a strict observer of the law. The Greek gives the sense that, that, that he was a righteous man, and yet he was not willing to expose her to a stricter judgment. Joseph didn't have a choice as a faithful Jew but to divorce an adulteress. And that's what Deuteronomy called him to do. What Joseph had the choice of doing was how he did it. He could either do it privately without fanfare. He could simply write her a writ of divorcement or he could do it publicly in a community tribunal and drag her before everyone. That's what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. Joseph was a faithful Jew. He kept the law and the law told him that when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that he find no, he, she finds no favor in his eyes because of some uncleanness in her. Mary was a perceived adulteress he writes her a certificate of divorcement, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. That was what Deuteronomy said. the punishment in judging publicly was worse deuteronomy twenty two twenty two if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die the man that lay with the woman and the woman in That you should, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Private or public, Joseph chooses private. And the fact that, that Joseph did it, both the fact that he did it and the fact that the way he chose to to go about it, it shows what kind of man he was. I think you and I would do well to remember that whenever we are, whenever we are wrong. Augustine said, no, nothing so clearly discovers a spiritual man as his treatment of an erring brother. Joseph was a righteous man. He did according to the law. But where he had leeway and according to the law, he chose the more compassionate route, even though he believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Mary had sinned against him. And the Bible tells us that God gives Mercy to the merciful. So, God sends his angel to inform Joseph. The angel that comes is found in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Look at how this unfolds. But while he thought about these things, while he pondered these things, and I think a lot of times when we read passages in the Bible, it's just so compacted. I mean, we just, we read a long period of time and a lot of emotions in, in about 10 verses here. Imagine, if you will, Joseph sending Mary off to her cousin Mary, anticipating, preparing for the wedding. They're betrothed. This is his, this is his wife. This is his wife to be. And she comes back, and whenever he sees her, he realizes she's pregnant. And now he's beginning to wrestle in his heart. Can you imagine the emotions all wrapped up in this one? these four little words? But while he thought about these things, I guess that's more than four, but you get the point. While that's happening, the Lord doesn't keep him in suspense long. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. You get to see more of Joseph's heart here and his love for Mary. It wasn't an easy decision. He didn't just say, well, forget that adulteress. He's pondering in his heart. He's wrestling with what to do. No doubt he's he's grieved. He was planning and preparing to, to come and get her at her house and on the wedding feast, take her to his father's house and the great celebration and And now everything's changed. Angels are messengers from God. You see that quite clearly in Revelation. Now, the significance of an angel showing up is it's a supernatural event. Angels don't just appear every day. If you tell me that, we probably need to have some counseling later. But angels, whenever they show up, they're messengers from God. And think of the significance here. Joseph is reminded of the promises that God, from God's Word. It's been over 400 years. God's old words still spoke in the Old Testament, but no angels, no visions, no dreams, no prophets had come since anyone could remember. And now Joseph is being addressed by one of God's messengers. This is a holy angel from the Lord. He appears in a dream. He addresses Joseph as son of David. He addresses Joseph by royal lineage. And he assures Joseph of Mary's purity. I'm sure that was a great relief to him after the shock of seeing an angel. He calls him the son of David, which told Joseph the angel knew him. Notice he calls him by name Brian. Son of William, don't be afraid. I mean, man, I mean I'm not just this guy knows who I am. And he also, more importantly, reminded Joseph of what he knew, what Joseph knew. Joseph was a faithful Jew, and he would have known the significance of the house of David. Joseph took pride in the fact that he was of the lineage of David. And while Joseph was not Jesus' birth father, he was his legal father. And so Jesus had the royal right to the Davidic throne through Joseph here. And the angel also tells Joseph something he longs to hear, that Mary is innocent. Look at what he says. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid, do not fear, to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the, the Holy Spirit. Do not fear to take Mary Your wife. She's innocent. It's okay. She didn't commit adultery. She's pure. What words of relief those must have been to Joseph. And yet what wonder filled his ears with what he says next. That which is conceived was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Those words... There's no plainer statement of Jesus' virginal conception in all of the Bible. You can find some that that equal it. But it is a testimony of the holy angel of the Lord that God gives about Jesus. He was born, he was conceived, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. One critic of the Bible said there is nothing peculiar about the birth of Jesus. He was not God incarnate, and no virgin mother bore him. The church, in its ancient zeal, fathered a myth, being bound to it as dogma. That's blasphemy. It's absolute blasphemy. If you deny the virgin birth, if you deny the supernatural conception of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not saved. Period. Amen. It is required that you believe. Why? Is it because you believe some historic fact of, of Christian dogma? No, because it is about the deity of Christ. And if Jesus is not God, Jesus could not be the better Adam. He cannot be the one who take away your sins. And if Jesus was not man, then Jesus couldn't shed literal blood and die on a cross and take your place. It's that vital. It's serious stuff. Because it's the stuff of salvation. And that's exactly where Matthew goes next. God's prophecy is explained. Now verse 21 is the bridge to the second point. Look at verse 21. Not only will be conceived in her as of the Holy Spirit, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people "...from their sins. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Yeshua, Yehoshua, which means Jehovah, Yahweh, will save." You know, whenever you you drive down the interstate and you see graffiti on the bridges that says, Jesus saves, you know that? It's true, but they really only have to write is Jesus and save some paint because that's exactly what the word, the name Jesus means. Jesus saves. Yahweh saves. And the name was meant to be a symbol of, of hope. I don't know if, if, you, if you did this whenever you named your child, but you probably picked the name you liked. Uh, you may have bought baby name books, or uh, you may have went back through your genealogy and found somebody that you admired or somebody in your in your family and you named your child based upon that that relative because it, it has it has roots, it has significance, it has significance, it has some meaning. And one of the things that we did for for our children, I can I, I have mine that my mother did did for me, whatever the name of the child is, you get them a little plaque or, or you put you put what that name means on on their wall. Brian means one of of strength. I always liked that whenever I was a young teenager. My mother had that on my wall. Whenever Jewish men named their their children Joshua, they they, they were doing that for a purpose. It was a symbol of hope. They were saying that that Yahweh saves. They're looking forward to the the Lord's Messiah in, in hope. They named the child out of faith. It was like the Passover. It was like the feast. It was to point to the promise of of God. It was pointing to the one true Joshua who would come. and, And the angel tells Joseph, he's here. His name declares what he does. Jesus will save his people from their sins. This one, born to Mary, wouldn't just testify of God's salvation that's coming. He would become God's salvation. What he does is wrapped up in the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's exactly what he does. Bishop J. Taylor said in old times, in the Old Testament, God was known by by names of power and of nature and of majesty. But the name of mercy was reserved until now. Think about that. No sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Why is there no sweeter name than the name of Jesus? Because Jesus saved me from my sins. And he saved you from yours if you believe in him what he did. It's what he came to do. There's no sweeter words in the Bible. He'll save his people from their sins. A Christian Hindu was was dying, obviously a Hindu man former, and his heathen comrades around him tried to to comfort him by reading some of the pages of their theology. And he he waved his hand as, as so much to say, I don't want to hear it. And then they called in a heathen priest and he said, if you only recite the, the Nuntra, it will deliver you from hell. And he waved his hand as much to say, I don't want to hear that. And they said, call on, call on Juggernaut. And he shook his head as to say, I can't do that. And they thought perhaps he was too weary to speak. And they said, now, now if you can just say Juggernaut, think of that God. If you can't even say his name, just think of that, that God. And he shook his head again, as much as to say, no, no, no. And then they bent down to his pillow and said, in in what will you trust? His face, lighted up with the very glories of the celestial fear, cried out with his rallying, dying energies, Jesus, that's who I'll trust in. Who are you trusting in? Do you need someone to save you from your sins? The only one that can save you from your sins is Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the one who can save you. Now, notice we're saved from our sins or their sins. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not Adam's sin, although Adam is our federal head, and when Adam fell, we fell in him. I can remember whenever, I think it was Bailey, it might have been Nathan, whenever they were little, we were reading the Bible. Just, just human logic, reading about the sin of Adam and how that plunged the whole human race. He said, that's not fair. I wasn't there. Adam did that. Now, I get this. And then you read the rest of Romans. And it says, we sinned in the likeness of Adam, right? Adam sinned. Yes, he did put us in a very bad predicament, but can anybody in here look in their own heart and say, you haven't? Even if you cease to do evil this very moment and had the ability never to sin again, which you don't, what are you going to do about the sins that you've already committed? Oh, I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to start living right, right now. All that is in the past. From this point forward, I'm turning over a new leaf. What are you going to do about the sins that you've already committed? Somebody has to pay for those. You've got to stand in judgment before God for those sins. Who will pay for them? And the Bible tells us that we're guilty of one law, breaking one law. We're guilty before God, period. We need to be saved from our sin, past, present, and future. And the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of it, right? Jesus paid it all. And so all to him I owe. Well, look at verse 22. Matthew declares this is not just what he came to do. It's, it's, it's who he was. Notice what he says here in verse 22. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Two names of the Messiah here. Jesus The one that Joseph and Mary are to give him because of what he will do and then the prophecy fulfilled of who he is. One describing God's saving promise and the other describing God's enduring promise. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. The new word from the Lord to Joseph was the fulfillment of the old word from the Lord. You should always remember this, this little maxim. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's probably not true, especially whenever it comes to the things of, of the Lord. The old message doesn't change in our culture. Your job is not to find new ways to witness to people, but to tell people the old, old story of Jesus and His love. That's God's message. And this passage is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 where God reports to the wicked king Ahaz that he'll not forsake his people, even though Ahaz had forsaken his people, even though the people had forsaken God. And they turned to the Assyrians whenever they were, whenever they were being pressed by, by two kings that were coming against them. And Ahaz even refuses to listen to the Lord. He turned away from Yahweh. And Isaiah responds with an amazing messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7. You know it all too well. God will not forsake his people. He will be with them. He'll preserve them. And the sign of that promise will be Emmanuel. He'll come and he'll dwell among them. And 700 years later, God had not forsaken his people. There's still a remnant. There's still Israel. There's still a law. There's still temple, even though they they were exiled and overtaken. And the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Jesus, the Messiah. He would come. He'll save His people. That's anyone who looked to Him by faith. That's the promise to Abraham. The whole earth would be blessed through the promise to Abraham and Emmanuel. God is with His people. A promise made to Joseph and David. And they'll be part of the kingdom, which is no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of both God's salvation and the promise of God's presence. And He's even with you today if he saved you he's with you and if he saved you and he's with you he's you're called to serve him did you know Matthew begins and ends in the same way here is the prophecy of Isaiah behold a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated God is with us did you know that Matthew begins and ends in the same way? Why does that matter? Presence. Look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We call it the Great Commission passage. Look at how it ends. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am Emmanuel, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, even to the coming kingdom. Here is that echo of presence. Our lives then are lived going for him and telling others about our king. The king has come, and if if there's a kingdom coming... You can be part of it if Jesus saves you from your sins. And if He does, He'll preserve you and His very presence will be with you until the day that the eternal kingdom dawns. Is that a message of hope or what? You can be saved from your sins and God will be with you all the way up to the point that you enter into the eternal kingdom no matter what He calls you to do as an ordinary person to do extraordinary things. Now watch how this whole thing ends with Joseph. Because it's exactly how we should respond to this passage today and this truth. Verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph, he heard the word of the Lord. He believed the word of the Lord. And he obeyed the word of the Lord. You see that? He heard the word of the Lord. He believed the word of the Lord. How do we know he believed it? Because he obeyed it. What did he do? He took Mary as his wife. He kept Mary pure. And he called the baby Jesus. Exactly the three things that the angel, on God's behalf, told him to do. And that's exactly what Joseph did. And that's exactly how you and I are to respond to this truth of the salvation of Christ and the presence of Christ as we're waiting on the kingdom of Christ to come. How many Christmases have you lived through? How many times have you heard this passage? How many times have you been reminded about the Advent? Plenty, I would guess. Maybe a few years. Maybe 50 years. The kingdom's not here yet. You still have work to do. And Jesus is with you all the way. He heard, he believed, he obeyed. It doesn't get any more basic than that, does it? Well, let me ask you. Are you doing that? Are you hearing the word of the Lord? He proclaims it three times a week right here at Timberlake Baptist Church. Are you hearing the word of the Lord? I'm not talking about are you reading your daily bread. I'm not talking about if you're having your quiet time. Are you sitting under the proclaimed word of the living God on a regular basis? Are you hearing the word of... Of the Lord. God speaks. And He speaks through His Word. And He's not going to send an angel to you in a dream. He sent me. Sorry about your luck. God sends forth His Word. And He expects you to hear it. Think about that. Here is His Word. He expects you to hear it. He's spoken it. He's given it to you. And Hebrews 11 says that we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses like Mary and Joseph and like plenty others. He expects you to hear the word of the Lord. Are you hearing it? Are you believing what you hear? Very simple, basic truths, but are you doing it? Don't you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know this story. Are you obeying the story? Mary And Joseph believed what they heard. Many people hear a lot of God's word, but they believe very little of it. Think of how many sermons that you've heard preached. Think of how many sermons I've preached. It's a shuddering fact. thought to then correlate that into how much have I heard versus how much have I believed. Sometimes we don't believe the words that we hear because we're not listening to believe. We're listening to confirm what we already believe. You ever approach the Bible like that? I mean, I mean, Now, I know I believe that. Where is that passage in the Bible? You get out your Strong's Concordance to confirm what you already believe. You listen to God, but you don't hear. You ladies know what I'm talking about because your husbands do it all the time. They listen, but they don't hear. That can get you in big trouble, men. It can get you in worse trouble whenever it comes to God and His Word. If you haven't learned anything new from the Lord for a while, you might want to check to see if you're really listening. Because God's word is so simple that a little child can understand it and it's so deep that the greatest egghead that ever lived on the planet can drown in a thimble full of it. Listening is what we're to do. Because listening leads to believing and believing and believes to obeying. Are you obeying what you believe? You're not really believing until you do. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Have you obeyed the command to be saved? Yeah, yeah, I believe if I'm going to go to heaven, the only way I'm going to go is Jesus. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus? Confessed your sins? Repented and turned and said, God, forgive me, I put my trust in you. Have you done that? Then you're not really believing. You believe that passage? Are you obeying that passage? You know the statement, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. Finish what you've started. Obey. Give what you've promised. Pray for the one you intended. Serve in the way that you intended to serve. We've been saved from our sin. by Jesus. And we have the promise that He is Emmanuel and His presence is with us. And so, because of that, we can go. We can go make disciples. We can bring them into the church. And we can edify them. We can build them up. We can train and we can send. His presence is for our service. So what about it? Are you saved? Are you serving? Just like Joseph did. I'll end with this story. A Moravian missionary once went to the West Indies to preach to slaves. He found it impossible to carry out his design so long as that he bore to them the relation of a mere missionary. They were driven into the field very early in the morning and returned late at night with scarcely strength to roll themselves into their cabins and in no condition to be profited by instruction. They were savage toward all of the race and rank of their masters. They determined, he determined to reach the slaves by by becoming a slave himself. He was sold that he might have the privilege of working by their side and preaching to them as he worked with them. Do you suppose the master could have touched the hearts of those miserable slaves as did the man who placed himself in their condition and went among them? lived as they lived, suffered as they suffered, toiled as they toiled, that He might carry the gospel to them. This missionary was but following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who took on Him the nature of men, came among them, lived as we lived, that He might save them from their sins. Oh, if you know that, you rejoice if you don't. You can. He loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And what you need to do is hear the word of the Lord, believe the word of the Lord, and obey the word of the Lord. Chewbacca heads. Kent Hughes said, Behold at once the deepest mystery and richest mercy. By the light of nature, we see the eternal as God above. By the light of the law, we see Him as God against us. But by the light of the gospel, we see Him as God with us, reconciled to us, at peace with us, interested for us and interceding on our behalf. Thanks be to God for that unspeakable gift. Father, I pray this morning for everyone who has not received that wonderful gift that you gave. I pray for everyone right this very moment that's being convinced that they're a sinner. Convinced that they have no hope apart from Christ. I pray, Lord, that they would simply do as Joseph did. That they would hear, believe, and obey Lord, they don't need to know fancy words. They don't even need to to know a a specific prayer. They just need to cry out to you. Save me, Lord. And you'll hear the cry of their heart. I'd be happy to pray with them or anybody else. So, Father, I pray for every Christian here this morning. As we've been reminded of the commission, and the commission is wrapped up all the way in the Old Testament, your presence, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Help us, Lord to stop collecting dust and to go. Because you're coming. Until you come, we're to build your kingdom. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.